Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sullivan County Democrat podcast sponsored by the good people at the Kitchen Table Cafe in Calicoon, New York. Uh, on tonight's episode, uh, we are joined by Sullivan County Undersheriff Eric Shibodi, uh, who will be discussing a few different topics with us. But the first question I like to ask all of our guests is to explain a little bit about yourself as far as in the county and um, in law enforcement specifically. Uh, how did you get into the profession? Well, first of all, Joe, thank you for having me on this podcast tonight. Um, Sheriff Mike Schiff was supposed to be here with me, but uh, we have a search going on for a missing boater on White Lake. So he is out there with the state police and the fire service uh, attempting to locate this person. So he apologizes for not being available. So my career begins in 1983. Um I kind of took the NYPD police test as a joke with some friends, and they wound up calling me. And uh, I was 20 years old when I got called. They used to hire you at 20 years old. And I worked for NYPD from 1983 to 1987. And at that time, uh, I took the state police test and switched over to the state police. When I came out of the state police academy, I was assigned to Middletown headquarters, and then eventually the Pine Bush Satellite Office. There's a, there was a little three-man station in Pine Bush. And the reason for that station's existence is <clears throat> that Pine Bush is really not a town or a village or anything. It's just a hamlet. It's just a post office delivery zone. So the Pine Bush addresses actually cover three counties. This Pine Bush addresses, of course, in Orange. Pine Bush addresses in Ulster County, and there's a few Pine Bush addresses in Sullivan County, up at the end of Burlingham Road. So I worked there uh, until 1997 when I got promoted to sergeant, and they sent me to New York City to run the communication system for the state police. So I was there for all the big events, Y2K, uh, 9-11, and then in 2003, I transferred back to Troop F, and I was assigned as a sergeant to the Liberty Barracks. And then in 2005, Mike Schiff ran for sheriff, and he got elected, and he needed an undersheriff to come on board. And between my New York City time and the uh, state police time, I had enough time to retire. So I officially retired from the state police, and January 1st, 2006, I became the undersheriff when Mike Schiff was sworn in as the sheriff of Sullivan County. So that's uh, that's my career in a nutshell. Very nice. And and so for you, since you've been in your, your law enforcement career, um, the, this is a two-part question. One, what have you found rewarding about the career? And, and once uh, you've answered that also, if there are people um, interested in a career in law enforcement, what would you recommend them to do? And, and um, how do you get involved with the uh, sheriff's department as far as that process? Okay. Um, just uh, I just want to do a little housekeeping. First of all, uh, you use the term sheriff's department, and this is very important for your listeners. Uh, we are not a department. We are not a department of the county. The sheriff's office is an elected office, like the district attorney's office, like the county clerk's office, like the treasurer's office. I'll be quite frank, there's some people in government that would like us to be a department so they could tell the sheriff what to do. But the sheriff is a unique type of law enforcement officer. He's actually elected directly by the citizens of Sullivan County every four years. 
as opposed to a police chief that's appointed by a town board. And then you have that intermediate layer there where if you have a problem with a town or police, a uh, village police department, you have to go through the town board to get the chief to uh, address your concerns. That is not the case with the sheriff. The sheriff is uh, is elected directly by the people, answer, answerable directly to them every four years. So basically, the sheriff has to apply for his job every four years with the people. Okay, so now that I got that out of the way, um, law enforcement is, uh, you know, once you get past all the uh, mystery and intrigue on TV of all the police shows and all the Lifetime series with the uh, with all the uh, uh, murders and homicides and all the stuff that get investigated, uh, it's a very interesting and re- rewarding career. Uh, you see people at their best. You see people at their worst. And a lot of times people will confide in you some very personal stuff, and you've just met them moments before. So it's an opportunity for you to really help the community you serve. And I can tell you when law enforcement officers like myself see things like Patrick, uh, Derek Chauvin uh, kneeling on uh, George Floyd's neck, that is absolutely abhorrent. I mean, we cringe when we see stuff like that. There is no justification for that. And I've been quite upfront with people right from the beginning. George Floyd was murdered on national television. So there's no two ways about it. And this is what we uh, strive to prevent in professional police forces. We tell people, listen, we give you a gun and a badge and a lot of authority, and you're not the boss of anybody out there. You're there to help them and to enforce the law and to protect people. And sometimes you may have to use force. Sometimes you may have to use deadly physical force, but it has to be reasonable and measured. So we've instilled that that uh, mantra, if you will, on our members here at the Sullivan County Sheriff's Office. And I think it served us well. Uh, we're well respected in the community. We've had very few problems. And even the um, the most serious criminal, if you will, that we've arrested, we still show them respect. And many times they call us after they're finished with the criminal justice system, they'll call us for help. Say, hey, I have a problem with my family. Will you help me? Absolutely. You're a citizen too, and we're here to protect you. So law enforcement is a very rewarding career. It's very interesting. If you're looking for a nine to five Monday through Friday desk job, you need not apply because you're going to be out there handling incredible situations that you never thought you'd be involved in. And we attempt to provide all the training necessary so you can overcome any type of situation you may encounter. And we, uh, and if not, you can get on the radio or the phone and call for help, and we'll come out and make sure that you're successful in your job. Now, the second part of the question is, uh, do I recommend a career in law enforcement? Well, <clears throat> law enforcement, as you know, has changed dramatically in the last uh, 18 months. Uh, there have been new laws passed in New York State that affect the way the police operate. And uh, you'll see a lot of old-timers get disgusted and retire. But the fact of the matter is the new people who are who will be coming on are not familiar with the old ways. They're, they'll only know the new ways. And they'll start from where we're, we are at at this point in history. They'll start with that knowledge from the academy. And they'll go forward and do the best job they can. Now, will their job be harder 
than their predecessors um, in law enforcement? In some respects, yes, but no one said it was going to be an easy job. And if you really don't have knowledge of the way it was, I mean, you may hear stories that, you know, we used to do this kid. Now it's more difficult. You may have a perception it's more difficult, but for the most part, uh, you'll get the training for the for the appropriate time period that you come out of the academy. The only thing I can say we should worry about collectively as law enforcement officers at this point, there's a push on to end um, qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is a legal term where if you're doing your job and following the rules of your organization and following the laws of the county and the state, that if something goes wrong, you are indemnified by the municipality you work for. Now, there's some groups out there, anti-police groups, I'll be right up front with you, that I consider them anti-police groups. They're looking to end qualified immunity. And if that happens, you will not be able to hire any police officers or law enforcement officers because the first false step you make, and it could be unintentional, accidental, whatever, uh, you'll be open to a lawsuit. They'll take your house, your pension, everything you got. Now, some people who think the police as a as a large group uh, nationally everywhere are uh, racist and oppressive. They're okay with that. But let me tell you, there's a lot of police officers out there trying to do the right thing. And to open them to that type of liability, uh, they will vote with their feet and they'll be gone. So we, we've got to be careful when we make these police reforms that we don't go too overboard. And I know there's a lot of people out there that want to end qualified immunity. And if you attempt to do that, you will not get anybody to take the job. No one will want to be a law enforcement officer because uh, a simple lawsuit uh, can drain your bank account pretty quick. So that's pretty much uh, the state of where we're at with current law enforcement issues. And um, apologies for the, the slip of the tongue. I'm used to writing sheriff's office uh, multiple times in pieces. Uh, with um, the, the last part of the question that I'd also ask was just uh, if you're a regular folk person in the county or any, uh, well, I guess we'll stick to the county for the sake of the question, and you're considering a career with the sheriff's office, uh, what steps must they take? Okay, so that's a, it's an excellent question. Uh, prior to approximately 1989, the sheriff simply interviewed you and hired you, and you worked for the sheriff. And everybody was a deputy, including the secretaries. I've seen some pictures here where the sheriff's secretary wore a police-type uniform and had to go to the range and qualify with a firearm. Uh, sometime, and then the sheriff uh, could put you anywhere. You could be in the jail one day. You could be on patrol in the, the next Sometime around 1989, 1990, the um, the laws were changed, and the sheriff's employees were brought under the rules of New York State Civil Service. So to answer your question, if you have an interest in becoming a deputy in the jail, a deputy in our civil division, or a deputy on the road patrol, you have to take a civil service test. Now, those tests uh, are listed when they're available on the county website. And the test for the road patrol in particular is a police officer slash deputy sheriff test. So 
when you take that test and get placed on a list, you can be called by the sheriff's office or you can be called by the Liberty Police Department, Monticello Police Department, or the Fallsburg Police Department. So it's a police officer test. Deputy sheriffs are police officers, according to the criminal procedure law. And uh, you could be called for any one of those jobs. But if you have your heart set on the sheriff's office uh, and you receive what they call a canvas letter from us asking if you're interested in uh, doing a background investigation uh, for potential employment, then you would respond to that letter and you would come in for an interview. But it all starts by taking the test. Great. And um, now getting into a few different topics uh, with the sheriff's office. The, uh, if anyone goes on social media and they're on the, in the evening hours, they might have noticed recently that uh, you guys started a new post uh, every day around 9 p.m., uh, which is uh, for the 9 p.m. routine. Um, if you could explain a little bit about that and how you guys or why you guys felt uh, it was important to start that initiative. Well, the uh, 9 p.m. routine appears on our Facebook page. And it is the brainchild of Sergeant Blake Starner. And he is a uh, community-minded uh, sheriff's deputy, uh, rank of sergeant. And uh, he is concerned with what goes on sometimes around the county. Now, we're lucky to live in a very safe place, a relatively safe place. A lot of people don't lock their doors. In fact, some of the people don't know where the keys are to their doors. They leave their cars open unlocked. Every once in a while, some uh, ruffians will make their way through our neighborhoods and rifle people's cars, taking their change, or if they leave a credit card in there, or any type of property, radar detector, or who knows what. And uh, we'll start getting those reports the following morning that you know, you'll know you get a report from this neighbor, that neighbor. Next thing you know, you could mark them off on a map and, and follow the, the uh, path of the perpetrators overnight. So a lot of those situations can be avoided if we just have a regular routine at nine o'clock at night and lock our cars, lock our doors, turn on the outside lights. And uh, it's just a, um, a public safety idea that was uh, put forth and the sheriff gave the approval for it. And that's what you see every night at nine o'clock, a message goes out on Facebook just as a reminder to help keep the citizens of Sullivan County safe. Yeah, and um, and that's definitely something that we've noticed on on the social media. And um, the other next question is: uh, recently, I attended a Association of Supervisors meeting, and uh, you and uh, Sheriff Schiff ended, uh, were present. And um, I know you were invited up to speak by the supervisors, and you touched on a few different topics. Uh, one of which was uh, "Hope Not Handcuffs," which is an initiative that's been implemented in New York and uh, across certain parts of New York and, and Michigan uh, with some success. And uh, I know that uh, DA Megan Galligan um, also touched on this, I think at legislature later that same week. But um, for those of our listeners to this podcast that don't know uh, what that is, if you could explain a little bit about the program, how uh, the sheriff's office uh, heard about it and um, kind of plans moving forward. Well, Joe, let me just give you a little background on how we got into the situation we are in in regards to the opiate crisis. So we had two big events that occurred. Uh, first of all, uh, 
In 2003, we invaded Afghanistan as part of the war on terrorism. Now, prior to that point in time, if you grew poppy plants, which is the uh, plant from which um, heroin is manufactured, uh, if you grew poppy plants in Afghanistan, the Taliban would come along. They'd either cut your hands off or they would tar and feather you, pour motor oil on you, and parade you through town. They just didn't tolerate that. Then we had the um, armed forces invade Afghanistan to rout the Taliban. And at that point, the farmers there who you know live below the poverty line uh, started growing poppies. And the poppy plants were harvested and then transported through uh, through Asia into Eastern Europe following the old trade routes that were established by the CIA in the 1980s when they used those techniques to fund the Mujahideen against the Soviets. So they just reestablished those trade routes transporting uh, the heroin, the opium, uh, through through those countries into Eastern Europe and then through to the rest of the world. So <clears throat> I read a DEA report recently that said 95% of all heroin in the world uh, will come this year from an area known as the Golden Crescent. And basically it stretches from Pakistan, across uh, Afghanistan, over to Uzbekistan, and that's where the majority of the poppies are grown. There's a small amount grown in what they call the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia, and then you have the black tar heroin being grown in in Mexico. So the majority of it's coming from the Afghanistan, Central Asia area. So back in the 1970s, uh, heroin um, was pretty expensive if you adjusted for inflation. It was about $10 a bag. Now, if you're willing to take a ride to Patterson, New Jersey, you can buy heroin for $3 a bag, drive it up here to Sullivan County, sell it for $10 and make a $7 profit. So if you're addicted to opiates, to heroin, uh, you can support your habit and make some money too while you're at it. Now, the other factor that has created this crisis was the overprescription of synthetic opiates, uh, namely oxycodone or oxycontin. And what happened was uh, the manufacturers basically got caught pushing drugs. They would give doctors incentives to prescribe this medications, powerful medication, very addictive. You have receptors on your brain that are set up to receive endorphins, and, and this goes back to uh, our uh, prehistoric ancestors. If you suffered some sort of trauma, maybe you broke your leg or fell off a cliff hunting uh, woolly mammoths or whatever, um, your body would release endorphins to keep you from going into shock. So you have those receptors on your brain, and that's what the opiates attach to and give you that feeling of euphoria. Unfortunately, the first time you take one of those drugs and you feel that effect, you're chasing that effect for the rest of your career as a drug abuser, and you never quite obtain it. So that's why you take more and more until you overdose. So anyway, oxycodone, oxycontin, overprescribed. Uh, eventually, people's prescriptions would run out. They would try to steal it from their friends, maybe go over to visit their friend, raid their medicine cabinet, maybe visit their grandmother, steal it from them. Eventually, those sources dried up, 
and then you would go out on the street and try to buy it. Now, typically, oxycodone, oxycontin goes for a dollar per milligram. So if you're buying a 60 milligram tablet on the street, you're going to spend 60 bucks. Gets very expensive quick. So what's your alternative? Heroin, $3 a bag. So if you're willing to drive to Patterson, New Jersey. So, you know, years ago, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, uh, heroin was the drug of last resort. You know, marijuana was recreational, cocaine was glamorous, but God forbid you got hooked on heroin, you were just withering away. You were a degenerate drug user, and everybody was uh, uh, recoiled at the thought of using a needle to uh, get high. Today, that stigma is gone. The young kids today, they smoke heroin, they snort it, they shoot it, they do not care. The stigma is gone. So essentially what we have is the grand conjunction of planets, as I like to call it. You have the war on terrorism, which has generated an overabundance of opium and thus drove the price down. And then you have the overprescription of synthetic opiates that has created addicts. And the addicts are being steered towards the cheap heroin. And we are now in the crisis that you see on the street every day with overdoses and all the other permutations that go with it. So on to hope with handcuffs. So with that background in place, what we found is to address this crisis, the sheriff has come to the realization that we cannot arrest our way out of this situation. We need a multi-level approach. And the three basic steps are one, education. Uh, and we're part of that education system in our schools, the DARE program and the school resource program. Uh, we must have treatment, and that's where the hope not handcuffs comes in. And then we must have enforcement. Uh, we must uh, go after the big dealers. So it's it's a three-step, three-prong attack that we are coordinating with the district attorney's office and our district attorney, Megan Galligan, and the other law enforcement agencies. So basically the way hope not handcuffs works is if you're arrested for a nonviolent minor offense, so in other words, not a felony, or it could be a felony, but maybe a low-level felony, again, nonviolent, uh, you will be offered treatment um, prior to being processed for that, for that offense. And if you agree to go to treatment, the charges are held in abeyance until you successfully complete that treatment. If you do not avail yourself of the treatment, then you get prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Now, the way it used to work was prior to bail reform, you would get arrested and put in jail on bail. Now you're cut off from your drug supply out on the street. And pretty much there was a lot of leverage on you to go to a program. The other thing they would use is drug court, where after the arraignment and your contact with the criminal justice system, if you agreed to go to drug treatment, you, your case would get switched to drug court, and you would have to follow the course of treatment and prove to the court that you successfully completed that. But now with bail reform, uh, that's all changed. Uh, you can no longer bring a person before a judge and arraign them unless it's a very serious charge involving uh, death of a human being, uh, a crime of violence, a hate crime, things of that nature. So people are automatic people get caught with a quantity of drugs are automatically being released they get an appearance ticket or as law enforcement likes to call it a disappearance ticket and they go back out on the street and get high there's like no intervention that the 
bail system used to afford you. And there's a lot of arguments back and forth whether that was good or not. I know the advocates for bail reform say it was unfair. If uh, you were a person of lesser means, you could not make bail and you sat in jail. Uh, a person of wealth could post the bail, get out, and continue to commit crimes. I mean, that's some of the arguments that, that uh, generated the bail reform movement. But what's happened uh, for us on the street, we just don't have that leverage with people anymore where you can put them in and tell them you have a choice, uh, go to rehab, go to treatment, or go to jail. <clears throat> so Hope Not Handcuffs is a program that we hope to address the shortcomings of bail reform and attempt to help people. Now, the nice thing about Hope Not Handcuffs is you don't necessarily have to be in trouble with the criminal justice system. If you decide one day, I've had enough, I need treatment, you can walk into any police station and say, uh, I need help and I'm ready to go. And typically when you encounter people like that, you have a very small window of opportunity, maybe one or two hours before they change their mind, they start feeling sick or whatever, and they decide, ah, the heck with it, I'll go back out and get high again. So you have to have things in place where when somebody walks in and asks for that treatment, you can react very quickly. And this has been the problem that police officers uh, on the street have run into and, and caused most of their frustration. In the past, it, was, it wasn't a clear path to refer people who wanted treatment. Uh, you would call up some of the treatment locations, and if the person was high at the time you called, they wouldn't take them. But if you call other treatment places and they, they uh, weren't high, they'd say, call us back when they're high. So you'd, you'd run into both, they, both situations where if they're high, they wouldn't take them. If they're not high, they wouldn't take them. For the ones that weren't high, they would say, well, they're not in crisis. We're not going to take So what we've done now is we've got together with all the um, professionals in the community to come up with the services that we would need once we encounter one of these people. So Hope Not Handcuffs is not, for, not only for people who get arrested, but also for people who decide one day, hey, I need help. But again, it's always, it's always that narrow window. And if you don't react fast enough, they're going to change their mind and go back out there. So that's basically how it works. Yeah, and with, with sort of how the opioid epidemic uh, has been kind of wreaking havoc across the nation, um, it's, uh, it's always interesting when a program like this, which has had um, some pretty good success from what I've seen online um, in, in Michigan and New York where it's been implemented, uh, you know, hopefully that will uh, produce um, some great results uh, moving forward to try to put a, a dent in this thing. Uh, which has already, you know, caused a lot of uh, pain in a lot of people's lives. Um, the last uh, sort of question I have for you tonight on another uh, sort of, a, this is a statewide uh, initiative here, starting yesterday, uh, which uh, was uh, Monday, May 24th, uh, Buckle Up New York started. Um, if you want to touch on that as far as what's going on across the state, and uh, I believe that's going on through the 6th of June. Uh, so almost two weeks uh, that will be taking place. So Buckle Up New York, known as the Bunny Detail, B-U-N-Y, Buckle Up New York, it also goes by the name of Click It or Ticket, is a motor vehicle safety initiative that comes out of the governor's office of traffic safety. And 
aside from getting all the police agencies on board to help with this, they actually give out grants. So you don't have to deplete your manpower that's on patrol. You can actually assign people, dedicate them to this program without tying them up from answering regular calls. So uh, so the, this period from uh, May 24th through June 6th is uh, like a high-intensity enforcement period. And the different police agencies will be out looking for people not wearing their seatbelt, looking for children not properly re restrained in child seats or booster seats. And also, the legislature last year passed a new law requiring backseat passengers now to be seatbelted. So I'm happy to say the statistics show that New York State has a 94% compliance rate. So it's going to be, I'm telling you now, it's going to be really tough for our police officers to find people not wearing seatbelts because the statistics indicate most people are complying. And I can tell you, we started my kids at an early age, and they get in the car, and they feel naked if they don't buckle up. So a lot of people, it's a regular routine. They're in the habit of buckling up. But every once in a while, we have those horrific accidents where people get ejected out the windows of their vehicle as they roll over, or they come halfway out and the vehicle rolls over on them and crushes them, and they weren't wearing their seatbelt. So seatbelts save lives. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's it's proven, proven, proven scientific um, uh, surveys and, and results, and it just um, it's one of those things that we can something that's easy to do to keep our people safe on the road. So. We will be enforcing seatbelt law. Uh, we will be looking for people not wearing their seatbelts and I encourage everybody to buckle up and keep their families safe. Uh, yeah, seatbelts are definitely important to wear. And I'm hope, um, you know, hopefully that we can get that 94% statistic up even higher. Um, and um, yeah, well, once again, everyone, um, we're putting tonight's episode to a close. Um, once again, the Sullivan County Democrat podcast is brought to you by the good folks at the Kitchen Table Cafe in Calicoon, New York. And um, thank you, uh, Under Sheriff Eric Chabotti, for joining us this evening. So, Joe, I want to thank you, uh, Fred Stabbard, and the newspaper for putting these podcasts on. They're very important for the public. It, it adds another dimension to news reporting. And uh, you're doing a great job keeping the community informed. So thank you very much. Thanks, Eric.